Perfect timing. So friends, that's a wonderful little video. And I just want to commend that to you. Um, it's from Bible Project. Um, if you haven't seen it before, the full video is available on our Facebook page. And you can uh, go in there and have a look at it. I'll post it up again this afternoon. That way you can have a look at that one. It's a wonderful little... Um, it is a bit of a caricature, but it is a wonderful explanation of the book of Thessalonians. And one of the things that I love about the book of Thessalonians, the letter to the Thessalonian church, is that it is... Uh, a, a point in time where we can see some of the faith in action from Acts. So this, this direct connection with the stories we hear in the book of Acts and what we are experiencing and being described in the book of Thessalonians is great because you can, you can see that connection and you can bring that up. Now, if you're following our Bible study series, um, Bible study number three is on the table at the back there. And I know some people missed out last week on studies one and two. So you can grab, I've printed off a few extra copies of those and you can grab those. And if you'd like to go paper free, bless you, wonderful. Uh, let me know and I'll be more than happy to email you PDF copies of those ones, which you can then do on your device. Like I said last week, they're very simple Bible studies, about a half an hour or so. Do them with a friend, neighbor, partner, colleague. And uh, it's just a, a really nice um, opportunity to kind of engage and delve a little bit deeper into uh, what is happening behind the scenes there in Thessalonians. Some of you are aware that one of the jobs that I had as a young man, and I know you're about to say, you're still a young man. No, I'm not. All right. I've got teenage kids in high school. Okay. That's, I think when your teenagers are young people, when your children are young people, you stop being a young man. All right. So there you go. So um, but anyway, yeah, when I was, when I was much younger, <laughs> let's put it that way, um, I, I had a, a wonderful job doing asset management for the Department of Justice. And what that meant was that they gave me a scanner, just like the ones we use in the self-scanning booths at uh, Big W, Woolworths, and what have you. That's right, they gave me a scanner. And um, my job was to go to all the courts in Queensland, that's right, in Queensland, <laughs> And go and, and, and all of their, their monitors and projectors and podiums and, and things, they all had little barcodes on them. And my job was to go and scan those barcodes. And they told a computer back at head office in Brisbane that those things were still there. And then some high-ranking officer in the government would look at my list and go, oh, that's great. Your list hasn't changed from last year. Well done. Good job, faithful servant. And that was, that was my job. It was wonderful. I got to meet so many people, you know, across, particularly the southeast. I spent a lot of time in the southeast. Um, and, and it was great. And, and, and up in, like, northern Queensland, I didn't actually have to go up there. I think I went as far north as Rockhampton because they had their own little scanner. So they didn't need me to go and scan their devices. So it was great. But then I'd have to talk to them because half their stock was missing. And I'd be going, what's going on there? The thing that impressed me the most about that job was entering into the courtrooms across our state and finding what those rooms look like when they're empty. They are imposing, menacing even, with all the outdated wood and, and, and these symbols of justice there, as a kid from Latin America, walking into this world, 
Those rooms were intimidating for me. And I found myself in these spaces, often by myself, worried that maybe somebody might leave me locked in and I'd be stuck there and I couldn't get out. Or that maybe I'd go through the wrong door and end up in some judge's chambers or something like that and knock over a vase or a lamp or something and get in trouble. There was just this whole sense of judgment there. Can you say judgment for me? That was a prevailing aspect of this job. And I loved, I loved when I could just do the phone stuff because I knew that when I did that, I didn't have to go into those imposing rooms. I remember on one occasion, they had a projector set up, a very expensive projector, high in the ceiling of this federal courtroom in the federal building in Brisbane. You've probably seen it. It's the one that's got the T-shaped sculpture at the front when you're driving down the Riverside Expressway. That's actually a series of courthouses. And I couldn't get my scanner close enough. So the court officer thought, I know what we need to do. We're just going to stack a table and a chair and another chair and you just climb up there (laughs) and you're a tall boy. Just... (laughs) And I did it. Praying the whole time. Asking God, please don't let me fall down. I wasn't worried about breaking a bone. I was worried about breaking the tables and chairs. That was what I was really worried about. I mean, the reports alone, wow, what a headache that would have been for me as well. Can you imagine? But no, I scanned the blessed thing, went back to my office, and it was an escape. It was an opportunity. Whenever I went back to my office, okay, I can breathe now. I'm not in that space of judgment again. And I share with you this story for two reasons. The first is that during the time that Paul is writing this letter, he is actually brought before judgment. There's that word again. He is accused by the people in Corinth and he has to come before a magistrate to be judged as to whether or not what he's doing is actually illegal. Now, here is the kicker. See, the Romans, they understood intimidation and power dynamics. So the magistrate would sit on a chair some 13 feet high, looking down upon the accused, literally looking down their nose at them, and then they would cast their judgment. And it wasn't necessarily audible to all those who were immediately around, so there would be a crier. Do you know what a crier is? Yeah. And this person would lay out the verdictum verbatum the verdict word for word these words exist currently in our english language i think because of all the trauma from 2000 years ago that people experienced as they stood there and were judged in this way thankfully the magistrate in this particular instance judged paul to be innocent of breaking roman law And that this was just a Jewish internal matter. His judgment allowed Paul to go free. And this is something that we need to be aware of. You see, friends, judgment is something that is 
paramount, exists broadly and widely across our society today. There is judgment on TikTok, on Facebook, on TV, in the radio. We hear it all the time. And not that I'm crying victim here at all, but how often do we hear about people of faith coming under judgment? And what is it that people of faith come under judgment for? Inconsistency of behavior. And it's interesting because we are being asked to maintain that consistency. Now, I see often out in society and out in the world, these tattoos, these bumper stickers people put in there, only God can judge me. And I look at that and I go, yes, yes. You know what? We need to remember that. We need to know that. Not just here, but here. Because judgment can crush a person. Maybe they're not in a 13-foot tall tall throne. Maybe they're standing right in front of you. But it doesn't matter because in that moment, that person who is judging you could be like a, like a, a giant in your eyes. And we need to remember, no. The only judge who can cast justice, true justice, on our lives is our Lord. And it is His judgment that we hold to. So these are the two big ideas that I want to share with you today. Because you might be thinking, oh, okay, that's, what a fun little Bible reading. You know, we had Timothy, he comes back and he's like, yeah, the Thessalonians are happy, they're okay in their faith. Timothy gave witness. Timothy gave an account. And when Paul had been charged with doing the wrong thing, unlawfully. Timothy is coming along bringing witness of the faith and the good works of the Thessalonian church. A church that had been sat in judgment by its wider community, by the other Christians around them, and by the Jewish people around them as well. So friends... Sometimes we feel like as if we're in this space and we're looking around and everyone is judging us. I want to tell you, read Thessalonians. Read Acts. You'll find this is not new. As the word says, there is nothing new under the sun. But take heart. Take hope. Because the one who can judge us is the one who's most likely to pour out grace in our case. With that said, I invite you to bow your heads with me as we open our word together. Father, bless us with an understanding of your love. The knowledge that you have the authority, power and grace to look at us and to receive us. We acknowledge, Father, that we are sinners, but we are yet still your children. And that you love us and you accept us regardless of what we've done. So help us hear this morning from your word, the testimony, the witness account of your uh, sons and daughters and help us connect with that in our own lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Betty. So we see that Paul says to the Thessalonian church, when we were with you, we kept telling you 
that you will be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you all know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. Paul here is expressing a moment of personal weakness and vulnerability. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that wonderful? The great teacher, Paul the Apostle, the one who was cast down from his horse and who had to say, Jesus, yes, I will follow you. He looks at this church, this fledgling community that is being persecuted and he is basically saying, I suddenly became worried for you. In the previous chapter, he talks about how he went to them and he had been among them as a parent. And yet they were the ones who had nursed him and cared for him. So he's bringing all of this language of family and connectivity because he wants them to know that he loves them. He is not sending Timothy as an emissary to go and check on them and make sure that ding, 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 everything is fine, everything's right. He is sending him because he loves them and he wants to check and see that they're all right. Now, this is really controversial because what we forget is that the Thessalonian people were not like Paul. And the law of Moses dictated that they were unclean. Paul was not meant to love them, according to the law of Moses. As a Jewish person, Paul was meant to reject them and keep them at arm's length. And even if they were believers and fearers of the Lord, he was not meant to, as a good Jewish person, actually interact with them, let alone break bread and say, I love you. But he did. He broke with his own cultural customs and understanding and expressed this with them. And I find it absolutely amazing that the people there embraced him and loved him in return when they knew that they had been rejected and pushed aside by so many other leaders who looked and behaved and had accents just like him. Now, what was it that changed here? The love of Christ. You see, the love of Christ can wipe out judgment. The love of Christ can wipe out persecution. The love of Christ can wipe out rejection. And I know that this can be hard to hear. Some of us have shared the love of Christ in our lives with those whom we love, with others around us, and we've been rejected. But friends, this is why I keep saying to you, and I, I will utter it again, it is not you they reject, it is... So we want to keep sharing it. We want to keep sharing that love. Thank you, Betsy. In Acts 17, we hear about what was happening in Corinth just before Paul goes to write this letter. Other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Sorry, my apologies. That is what happened in Thessalonica. So this is what Paul is remembering about 
the persecution that they were experiencing. And they rushed to this fellow Jason's house because they wanted to find Paul and Silas and bring them and hand them over to the crown. Thanks, mate. And so we have this understanding from Paul. Now, in our little cartoon before, we saw Paul and Silas running away. Didn't we? It wasn't funny. It's quite funny. But what we need to remember is that actually that was a very serious thing. And this phrasing we have here, that they went out and they got nasty people. If you've done your Bible study, you'd know I go into what the nature of these people were. They were criminals. So by handing Paul and Silas over to that crowd, they were effectively condemning them to death. This is where Paul is coming from. And he's talking to them. And he's saying, we were worried about you because when we were among you, we were judged. And we were judged to the point of death. It happened then again in Corinth, just before, Jesus, just before Paul goes to write this letter. Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. That's that 13-foot tall throne I was telling you about. And they said, this man is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, the proconsul said to them, since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. As I read and reflected and prayed in preparation for today's message, this phrase jumped up at me. Previously, friends, I would have read this as a very um, dismissive expression. I will not be a judge of these things. But now I read it as, I will not be a judge of these things. It's amazing the difference tone can make, isn't it? Now, I can't tell you whether or not in the Greek that this is intended or, or whatever. But what I can tell you is that these words resonated with me because I came to realize that in our 21st century context, there are many people who are ready to put their hand up and say, yeah, I will judge. I will come and I will judge. I will judge by the standards of society. I will judge by the standards of morality. I will judge by the standards of history. God doesn't use that standard. Friends, we spent one year in seminary studying the nature of God. Do you think we come out of that one year with a knowledge and understanding of what is the nature of God? No. <laughs> We're still exploring. We're still learning. And in fact, I'll say to you that after one year of intensive study in Greek and Hebrew and Latin and understanding the history of the nature of God, I've learned more from being among you <laughs> And seeing the nature of God at work in your lives and that of the congregations that I've come from before here than I did in that time of intensive study. I now have words to describe that, which is great. I am, I am equipped with the articulation to say, hey, when I see this in community, I can describe it in this way. But knowing and experiencing God is something that we can do only as we live Christ out. So when I read these words, I will not be a judge, it reminded me of the one, the only one 
who could be a judge. And I've shared this image with you before. That yes, God may sit in the judge's throne, the judge's seat. He may have the gavel. The victim is Christ Jesus. Who died on a cross and was put there because of our sins. And the accused is who? Me. I put him there. But here is the good news. Because you see, God has already rigged the case. Because the judge in our favor is not our own testimony. Is not our own good works. Is not our ability to do or say the right things despite the fact that our sin put Christ on the cross. It is in fact the Holy Spirit whom Jesus says, I will send to you a wonderful counselor. That word is advocate, lawyer, and he stands before us and the judge. And although the judge can judge us in righteousness, it is his own spirit that says, but you love this child. But you sent Christ to die for this child. But you will acquit and redeem this child. Amen. Paul sat before the magistrate. And he didn't get to say a word. And as a person who is somewhat verbose, as I imagine Paul is, he probably found that very frustrating. But my, what a move of the spirit that the proconsul cut him off before he could even say anything. Paul may have said stuff that would have put him in more hot water. But the proconsul cut him off. This is not for me to judge. And I would add, this is for a higher court. One that that proconsul could not envision or imagine. Paul would go on to do great things in Corinth. And he actually wrote four letters to the Corinthians. Sometimes praising them. Oftentimes correcting them. Because there were people whom God loved but who needed to be corrected. And God loves those whom he corrects. We have two of those letters in Scripture and they are filled with wonderful, theological, deep knowledge that explore the nature of God and the loving experience of Christ Jesus. To the Thessalonians, Paul had nothing but good things to say. In our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? I shared with you before, to experience the nature of God, we need to do it together. We need to sit side by side. We need to go out side by side. We need to open the word together in the uniting church we often talk about the incarnational beauty of fellowship I don't like those words because I think they're very clinical and they lose something 
To put it in more contemporary language, what we're trying to describe there is the opportunity where two human beings, flawed as they are, sit together and in that space experience Christ. This is something we emphasize in our movement because we believe that is one of the chief ways in which we will be able to change and shape this nation for the better. And that's why we're in the season of discipleship. Paul was blessed and encouraged. You bless me, Reverend Barry, our colleagues at all the different offices of the church. We are blessed by knowing that you are here. Isn't that wonderful? Because where two or more are gathered together, there Christ is also. So, to conclude, I want to share with you words that Paul shared with the Corinthian church after his experience being judged in that context. He tells them, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We know that it is what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God. And I hope it is also plain to your conscience. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one, Christ, died for all. And therefore all died. And he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves. But for him who died. And for them. And was raised again. I pray that this word is a word of encouragement for you in your journey, whether you're listening online or here in the congregation. And may God bless us this word to us today. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we know that you're the only one worthy to stand in judgment of us. Lord, we are your children. And we know that that colors your judgment. And we are so grateful for that. We are so grateful that you not judge us as a stranger, as someone who would dismiss our plight, but as a father looking at children who need to be corrected, embraced and loved. Help us to learn of your nature and exercise your love and your presence wherever we go. And bless us with an understanding of this. This day we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.